Welcome to Conversations on Wealth. This podcast is where the wealth industry experts discuss issues critical to family wealth planning. Join co-hosts Todd Angatavanich of Ernst & Young and Daniel Hoffey of Bloomberg Tax as they explore a range of topics from estate planning and taxes to governance and family dynamics to help wealth planning professionals guide their clients to the best solutions. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Conversations on Wealth podcast in the Bloomberg Tax Jumpstart podcast collection. Todd and myself are excited to bring to market a podcast series targeting the wealth planning community, particularly a podcast geared toward discussing pressing or complex legal issues within our practice area. Without further ado, I turn it over to Todd to introduce our guest. Well, thanks very much, Daniel. Uh, And thank you, everyone, for tuning in for our first installment of our Conversations on Wealth podcast. Uh, And uh, with that, we are very excited to kick this off with Steve Akers uh, as our first guest. And uh, Steve is going to be talking about what's hot. So Steve Akers is Managing Director, Senior Fiduciary Counsel at Bessemer Trust. Sure needs no introduction to many out there. Steve is also the President-Elect of the American College of Trust and Estates Council. We do very much appreciate uh, Steve uh, generously offering his time to join us for our first podcast series. So, Steve, welcome. Todd and Daniel, thank you very much. I look forward to our time together uh, and talking about estate planning current developments and what's hot currently. Okay, well, thanks very much, Steve, uh, again, for um, lending us your uh, insights and your your, your time. Uh, as an industry, we all look forward to uh, hearing uh, summaries of developments from you, and um, we certainly have a lot of things to cover today, and we're very much looking forward to uh, a good uh, discussion on this. Um, be covering a lot of issues, including the recent Kessner uh, case out of the Supreme Court, uh, some uh, proposals uh, out of uh, some of the Democratic candidates with respect to uh, transfer tax legislation uh, in the future, um, some insights from the trenches by tax litigators, uh, which is very, uh, very interesting to hear, um, some ongoing developments with respect to 2036, uh, valuation issues, including tax affecting, uh, and I think you know one of the newest issues is uh, some planning ideas with respect to qualified opportunity funds. Uh, so, uh, without any further ado, let me hand it off to you, Steve. Uh, let me begin well, with, I guess it's hard to get much hotter than the U.S. Supreme Court uh, getting involved in our area, which rarely happens. Uh, and, of course, uh, th- that did happen recently involving the state income taxation of trusts. Obviously, a very, very big deal as states are looking for revenue and a number of states have income taxes and will tax trusts as well. The the latest predicate of what we're talking about, we're talking about non-grantor trust. If it's a grantor trust, then wherever the grantor is, generally that state will be able to tax it. So for a non-grantor trust, the undistributed income and the non-source income if there is income produced in a state, then it's pretty established that the state can tax that. So for non-grantor trust, non-source income, undistributed income, can the state tax it or not? States vary as to the factors that they use to decide whether or not they can tax it. The most predominant factor that is used by the various states is if the founder of the trust, if the set lore of the trust lived in that state. So that could be either for a testamentary trust if the decedent lived in the state at the time the trust was at the time of death when the trust is created, or for an inter vivos trust, did the settlor of the trust live in the state at that time? Another 
factor that some states use. Did the trustee live in the state, or does the trustee reside in the state? If so, then the state can tax it. Was the trust administration in the state? Was a beneficiary residing in the state? Some states use a combination of those, that it takes not just one of those, but several of those in order for the state to be able to tax it. Trend of cases. Over the last couple of years, there have been a number of cases that have decided that various state statutes were unconstitutional and allowing the states to tax the, the undistributed income of trust. And those states generally have been some of the founder states where the, if the founder of the trust lived there when the trust was created. Finding uh, states have, or cases have found that that violated the due process clause, which is based on fairness. Are there enough contacts for it to be fair for the state to tax the trust? We had the Wayfair case, U.S. Supreme Court case, last year, deciding ultimately dealing with Internet sales and can states tax those. And ultimately, that court's held that the physical presence test that had been announced in the Quill case under the Commerce Clause would no longer be recognized. There was not a requirement of having a physical presence in the state. We wondered if that might lead to a difference of analysis with respect to the state income taxation of trust. Well, now we get the Castor State case. It involves a North Carolina situation. North Carolina is one of the few states that uses the factor whether or not the beneficiary resides in the state. And this is a case in which, yes, the discretionary beneficiary of the, st of the trust resided in North Carolina, but there was practically no other contact with North Carolina. Distributions were not being made to that beneficiary. Uh, th there was just no contact uh, in, in that situation. Uh, and, and so under the facts of the case, really pretty easy facts for the court ultimately to come to the conclusion that there was just not enough, quote, minimum contacts with North Carolina in order for to satisfy the due process clause for North Carolina to be able to tax that case. Uh, I heard Professor Sam Donaldson a couple of weeks ago saying that this really was a very easy case because of the just almost absence of contacts with North Carolina. Uh, as he put it, uh, as reflected by the deeply divided nine to zero opinion of the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, that, that this does not pass muster. The, the case went out of its way to say that it was decided on the facts of the case, leaving open that even in North Carolina, other situations, perhaps where there were distributions of beneficiary, where there's a lot more contact between the beneficiary and the trust, that it might be constitutional in that situation. But based on the facts of this case, it wasn't. The case did have a couple of comments about what would satisfy the constitutional requirements and suggesting that. And going back to old, old U.S. Supreme Court cases. If the factor were based on that the trustee resided in the state, that that would be enough. So we're pretty sure that's enough. Interestingly, that's not a favorite factor for states because that can then be a disincentive for banks and trust companies to locate in that state and be resident of the state. Uh, another possibility, if there is administration going on in the state, trust administration, uh, then there was suggestion in the Supreme Court case that that probably would be okay in citing some old cases. 
Uh, and then the founder states, it cited a couple of cases that if the founder really still controls the trust, that's enough. But but that's still a lot of contact. It's not a matter of just that the person created the trust and happened to reside in the state 20 years ago when it was created. So we, we are left with a, a lot of uncertainty at this point going forward. So thank you for that, Steve. And, and I think that the point that you were making that, that's so important here is that you know, the the industry was sort of anticipating uh, the, the opinion of the Supreme Court, and and I think initially was hopeful that there might be more that you could glean from this case. But it did seem like it was so limited to these specific circumstances. And as you mentioned, there was really very very little uh, connection uh, with North Carolina here. You had you had the trustees were outside uh, in different states. Uh, you had the place of administration in in a different state. You had uh, a situation where this was a fully discretionary trust, and no dis- no distributions had been made to the North Carolina beneficiaries. So it does seem like it was a real stretch to 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 sort of try to tax based upon just that connection of the. Uh, beneficiary residing in the state of North Carolina. Perhaps the biggest thing that come that we get out of the case is that we we now know that, that well first this is the first case in decades involving this issue from the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, we got a verification that the traditional due process analysis is what they're going to apply for this. Uh, that analysis bases based on fairness. Is there enough minimum contacts for it to be fair for the trust to be able to tax it? And we know now that's how the, the courts are going to approach this issue. And I think that's probably the biggest takeaway. Take Situations where there's some uncertainty, uh, let me just say of, of what to do. Uh, and I, I've mentioned there's been five or six cases over the last couple of years that have said some of the founder state statutes are unconstitutional. What do you do? The safest, most conservative approach would be for the trust to go ahead and pay the income tax and then file for a claim for refund so that then you don't run the risk of penalties and interest as well. Um, additional comments on Castor? Yeah, I guess, I guess just a, a, a question to you. What do you think, if anything, could be gleaned from this with respect to taxation by other states of trust? Well, the, as I mentioned, the most of the states that tax trust are the founder states. If the settlor resided in the state when the trust was created. Now, if if the settlor created the trust a year ago, the settlor still lives in the state, uh, that may be a situation where that's going to be enough. If the settlor created the trust 20 years ago and has had, again, everybody's moved, there's just no contact. And, and basically, that is the fielding case in Minnesota. Uh, where there's just really no contact anymore any longer. It would seem like there could even be less contact than in this Kastner case. So, you know, I, I think that's what we glean from it, Todd, that it's going to be based on the situation, but even some of the founder state statutes may be unconstitutional as well, which would bring back to if the trustee is located there or if there's administration going on there, that that would be, seem to be the situations where it has the most strength from a constitutional standpoint if the state wants to tax trust based on that factor. Okay, well, that that's great, and thank you, thank you for that, uh, Steve. Um, from your perspective, the Supreme Court didn't really get into the whole issue that the trust was decanted to a trust that would survive longer. Was 
How important of a factor do you think that was? And is that a useful planning technique for, for similar situations? Facts of this case were this was over a three- or four-year period of time. The last year under audit was 2008. The, the court had made a big deal that they were a discretionary beneficiary and that they were not assured of ever receiving this income that was being accumulated. Well, interestingly, the, the, the trust was scheduled to terminate and be distributed to the beneficiary the next year in 2009. But in the meantime, that they decanted under the New York decanting statute to extend the trust. Uh, it strikes me that the taxpayers were very lucky with respect to that issue. Uh, to say that their beneficiary is not assured of getting anything because of the possibility of decanting to extend the trust. Uh, so I, I, I think that as far as using that factor of not assured to get anything, that taxpayers were fortunate to have come out the way that they did. Well, that's great. So thank, thank you very much for that, Steve. Um, yeah, maybe we can talk about the, uh, the anti-clawback regulations uh, that were uh, introduced in November of last year. So the issue is if someone makes a gift of $11 million this year, we know they can do that and not have to pay a gift tax. But the donor survives until 2026 when the estate exclusion amount goes back down to $5 million indexed. Let's assume by that time it would be $6 million. Uh, and then thereafter, the person dies. They made an $11 million gift. We know it comes back into the estate as an adjusted taxable gift, but there's only $6 million of estate exclusion amount to cover that. So does the person have to pay estate tax on that additional 11 minus 6, that additional $5 million? There, there was real concern over that. A proposed regulation uh, indicates that that will not be a problem, but it very interestingly said, but for the position taken in this new proposed regulation, there would have been a clawback of that at that point, that there would have been the problem. But what we now know this is going to solve it, that the basic exclusion amount for estate tax purposes will be based on the larger of the exclusion amount at the date of death, or if larger, the amount of exclusions that have been applied against gifts during lifetime. So if someone made an $11 million gift, died when it was a $6 million, the $11 million exclusion amounts applied against gifts during lifetime is larger. So the estate exclusion amount would be $11 million and would cover the $11 million gift. What that tells me from a practical standpoint is we now know for sure there is a window of opportunity here. If someone does make an $11 billion gift, they live until 2026 when the estate exclusion amount has gone back down to $6 million. If they hadn't made that gift, they would only have a $6 million exclusion amount. By making the $11 million gift, they got $11 million out of the estate. Children now own it, and no gift tax or estate tax had to be paid on that. There is a real window of opportunity that we have now. From a practical standpoint, what does that mean? I have not seen a stampede of clients wanting to make $11 million gifts or for a couple wanting to make a $22 million gift. Even for very, very wealthy people, that is a very large gift. I think that that may change as we get closer to 2026. And we say 2026, it could even be closer than that. We know that elections have effects. We'll look to the election coming up in November. Uh, if Democrats were to win control of the House and the Senate, 
coming out of the November election, there would be some real significant possibility that the estate exclusion amount would be rolled back to the $5 million amount, maybe even less than that, sooner than 2026. And we might see a lot more people get interested very quickly in going ahead and making gifts. Uh, probably we're going to get some advance warning that legislation is moving through Congress, that there's some real possibility of the exclusion amount being rolled back quicker than that. And so at that point, people could really jump on the bandwagon of taking advantage of the window of opportunity. It's interesting that, you know, the, the anti-clawback regulations came out at the end of 2018. And like you were saying, we haven't really probably seen a groundswell uh, as a result of that clarification of people necessarily sort of rushing to take advantage of making these gifts of over $22 million. And, and part of that, part of that, I think, is sort of just a natural feeling of, well, that's a lot of money. And, you know, regardless of the size of the family, you want to try to make sure that you're, you're not giving too much away. And I think there's a sort of a, a sort of a difference in the way people view things between $5 million versus $11 million. And I think that does lend itself so importantly to sort of using the right kinds of trust structures, not only for sort of tax efficiency, but also to you know, be able to take advantage of this kind of structuring and and really sort of be able to protect the beneficiaries from their own indiscretions, as well as from protecting them from other things like creditors and divorcing spouses and so forth. And leaving lots of flexibility with, 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 with that large amount. Sure. Can yeah. a client pull the trigger today doing that, knowing that or having a great certainty that we're going to get this regulation finalized? And I think yes. I, I think it is very likely that we are going to see this regulation pretty much as written, get finalized. Uh, one wrinkle in that that we might see, the New York State Bar Tax Section made a suggestion that the regulation should not allow, quote, I'll call it lock-in gifts where there's retained income. If someone wants to take advantage of the window of opportunity but really doesn't want to give up being able to use $11 million for the rest of their life, a person conceivably can make a gift to a trust, retain the income from the $11 million. We know under Section 2036, the $11 million, and really the full date of death amount, but let me just look at the $11 million of the gift, would come back into the estate under Section 2036. We also know under Section 2001, if a gift comes back into the estate under the string statute, it does not also come back into the estate as an adjusted taxable gift. We just bring it back once. We also know that the exclusion amount will be the full $11 million, even if the estate exclusion amount falls back to, back to sick because we use this against gifts. We, we have $11 million of exclusion amount to cover that. So the person got $11 million in the hands of children, never paid a gift tax, never paid an estate tax. In effect, they took advantage of the window of opportunity. The New York Bar State Tax Section said that is too good of a deal and that the regulation ought not to allow the increased exclusion amount for these kind of lock-in gifts that are brought back into the gross estate. So in my mind, that's the one uncertainty that we will look for to see if the regulation covers that. The other possibility that we'll look for, a lot of commentators have suggested that it would be helpful if they also would add, is the effect of portability. 
What if the first spouse dies when there is an $11 million estate exclusion amount? Everything goes to surviving spouse, so we don't use up any exclusion amount at the first spouse's death. We have $11 million of unused exclusion amount, the DSU, the deceased unused exclusion amount, $11 million. But then the second spouse dies after the exclusion amount has gone back down to six. Does the DSU go down to six as well? If you just read the statute, you would come away thinking, yes, the DSU goes down. Uh, there is a regulation, and the preamble to the final regulations of the portability regulations would say the DSU does not go down. Uh, but but the, the, the regulation is not just crystal clear, and so some people have suggested it would be helpful if the IRS would make that crystal clear. Uh, it's conceivable that we could see that in the final regulations when they come out. Todd, any further comments that you have about the anti-clawback regulation? I, I, I would just I would just note that uh, you know very very welcome clarification uh, with respect to this and and uh, you know as we see uh, how things develop with respect to the political landscape, perhaps we may see more activity with with using the exclusion. I think another interesting thing, you know, that the size of the exclusion right now, I go back to when I first started practicing law uh, in the 90s, and the exemption was $600,000, and now we have uh, one that is, uh, you know, 18 and a half times that. Um, so how long that's going to be available in the, you know, for planning going forward, you know, we'll just have to see. But I think it does really present a window of opportunity uh, for people to be thinking about. So, uh Certainly will be very interesting to watch exactly how long uh, the increased exemptions uh, are here. Um, already we have uh, some of the Democratic presidential candidates talking about um, some uh, proposed legislation with respect to uh, estate and gift taxes. Um, so, Steve, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about some of those proposals. With respect to proposed legislation, let, let me just mention the Bernie Sanders bill regarding the estate gift tax, and I mention it because there's now code language, statutory language, that basically does everything the IRS has wanted to do over about the last 15 years, <laughs> kind of all the estate proposals for legislation, other than the Section 2704 proposal that they wanted some strengthening of 2704. Everything else is in there. Gift exclusion amount goes back to $1 million. Basis consistency would be applied for gifts as well. Valuation discounts would be really tightened down. Uh, grats have to have 10-year grats, 25% remainder interest, which would kill grats. Uh, grantor trust would be in the gross estate. Uh, if there's a distribution from a grantor trust, that'd be a gift. If the grantor trust becomes a non-grantor trust, that'd be a gift. Uh, GST dynasty trust, if the trust could possibly last over 50 years, the trust would not be GST exempt. Uh, it would not just be a matter of waiting 50 years. If there's any possibility of it lasting over 50 years, not GST exempt. Now, obviously, all of this, there are effective date provisions that existing trust would be okay. But it, we're not going to see that pass this year. But it, it's just kind of indicative. If we were to see at some point a significant political changeover in Congress, that's the sort of thing that is on the horizon, that that could be there. Just, just very, very interesting points, Steve, and those go, you know, back directly to the to the clawback uh, discussion we were just having about the window of opportunity here. A lot of these provisions are things that sort of are echoing from some of the things that we've seen in the past. Obviously, the provisions with respect to the Gratz 
and the elimination of the discounts, uh, some proposals in the past to to limit how how uh, long a dynasty trust could last. So uh, these are not uh, and you add in take away grantor trust and you add in take away grantor trust. I mean those are the central uh, strategies that have been used to reduce estate taxes. It's very interesting. It, it it is a very interesting thing, and it, and it reflects sort of the, you know, the back and forth that you have uh, as an estate planning practitioner, uh, because right now with the the amount of the exemptions that we currently have, there's probably been more of a shift towards income tax uh, planning, and maybe a feeling of well, you know, there there's less for some estate planners to do if if these uh, proposals go through, and a lot has to happen in order for that to happen, obviously. All of a sudden, it would make a lot of the traditional planning that we've seen in the past become even more important uh, once again. Let me discuss another topic uh, I found very interesting, the Morissette case, which discussed intergenerational split dollar life insurance. And that's still pending. That's still going on. Lots of risk with that. Uh, But let me mention a very interesting evidentiary matter uh, that has been raised in the Morissette case. The IRS requested uh, from the attorneys all communications regarding the purposes of the intergenerational split dollar arrangement that they did in the case. The attorneys came up with, oh, it was in the thousands of possible uh, contacts and reasons and conferences and discussions, uh, but, but all covered by privilege. The IRS made the argument that the attorney-client privilege was waived and the attorney work product privilege, which is basically the thinking going on in the attorney's mind behind the planning. Both of those were waived by arguing the bona fide sale exception to Section 2036 and 2038, or by arguing that under 2703B1, that there was a bona fide uh, business arrangement or that a transaction was not a device to transfer assets to natural objects of the bounty for less than full consideration. Just merely making those arguments waived privilege. Uh, That came up for a hearing, and the judge sent it back to the parties to, quote, narrow their arguments. (laughs) That that was the report that came out. So it, it will be interesting to see what happens with that. Uh, but but the IRS argument that was made there. It's just a very interesting uh, thing to even hear this argument being put out there. It seems like a real stretch, and in a sense, it seems like the IRS's argument is that, you know, whenever you're trying to make some kind of substantive argument to uh, sort of justify the reasons for doing a transaction, that that point alone inherently waives the privilege. Perhaps I'm oversimplifying it, but, you know, that's certainly my gut reaction to this. Another comment that was made by the IRS in the papers in the case, uh, that making a, to avoid penalties, reasonable reliance on the attorney, merely making that argument would be enough to waive privilege. Uh, You know, very interesting. Uh, It would be interesting to see what the court does with that argument. Right. I mean, as I'm aware, this is a, this is a, pretty new argument. I haven't seen this before. Have you? No, I I, I have not. 
I've not, which is what's so interesting about it. I was going to say, I mentioned a couple of uh, audit sort of issues uh, that, that I've heard this year. Uh, one interesting issue, uh, a speaker that I heard earlier in the year said that uh, an IRS agent told him, and I've never heard this before, an IRS agent told him that when the agents go off to spend their week reviewing through a big stack of gift and estate tax returns to select the ones that will be sent to a field office for an audit. When they're looking at a gift tax return, if the agent going through it decides it really does not justify a current examination, but just as the agent looks at it, the agent thinks there's a real question as to whether or not it met the adequate disclosure requirements to get the statute of limitations running, that gift tax return would be, quote, flagged in the IRS system so that for subsequent gift tax returns or a subsequent estate tax return filed by that donor, uh, this flag would come up raising the issue as to that prior return. Very interesting if, if, if that is what has happened. And if that's the case, it says to me, more important than ever, if a client is making a decision to file a gift tax return to report a transaction, make sure that you fully report it and get it reported to satisfy the adequate disclosure requirements. That's a very interesting point, Steve, and it does beg the question. So let's say you have a situation where uh, you are filing a, a gift tax return. Maybe you were doing a sale to grantor trust transaction, for instance, and you're filing a gift tax return reporting that, and you do so in order to get to the, get the statute of limitations running. And perhaps you think that you've satisfied the adequate disclosure requirements, but maybe the IRS's view is that you have not. And then could you go past the three years and uh, you know be under the false assumption that the statute of limitations has run on this transaction? Because it doesn't sound from this like you're going to have any indication that the return was flagged because that's an internal thing. Is that your understanding of this case? You're exactly spot on that that's the issue. Exactly. But you have no way of really knowing whether you've been flagged or not. So I guess it really right. puts that much in, that much more importance on making sure that the adequate disclosure uh, requirements have been satisfied. And we know the clients like to cut corners on the gift tax returns, you know, just do it as cheap as possible, get it done. You know, we can really use this to say it really is important to get it done right, get, get appraisals, then satisfy all, the, all, all of the requirements. Well, thanks very much, Steve. Um, one thing that uh, we're all familiar with is some of the evolving uh, case law with respect to Section 2036 and family limited partnerships, um, uh, most recently starting with the, the Powell case from about two years ago now and then more recently with the Cahill case. Uh, in both cases in which the IRS uh, was able to uh, successfully argue uh, that Section 2036A2 applied with respect to transfers uh, of assets into the partnership. Um, so, Steve, um, what, what's the latest and greatest on this that you can share with us? Another audit issue. Tax litigators say that the IRS agents absolutely are making the Powell argument, the argument under Section 2036A2 that can be made almost for any arrangement of people joining together, that when the people have joined together to do something, that they could undo that whenever they want to. And the ability to undo the partnership, the contract, the uh, joint ownership of property, what, what the, the ownership of S-Corp stock, you know, whatever it is, the ability to undo that and everybody get back their contribution, that therefore there should be no discount involved. 
very astounding uh, as the argument was made, but we know the Powell case made the argument. The Cahill case about a year later made the argument again, another tax court case, uh, and agents are making this argument in audits. Uh, very interesting. I think that's a very interesting development, Steve, and it you know it it goes back to the Strangey decision from '03 when the 2036A2 point was made that even uh, Mr. Strangey's ownership of just a limited partnership uh, uh, interest was enough to trigger inclusion under 2036A2, and then that really went dormant for several years until you then had Powell and then you had Cahill. From a practical standpoint. It, it really does uh, beg the question, well, what do you do with respect to your existing partnerships out there where perhaps parents maybe have given some gifts or sold some away, but they continue to own some interest? What do you do now? And I think I always go back to your point, Steve, that, well, really the name of the game is the bona fide sale exception, because in most cases, if you satisfy that, that's where the taxpayer's estate has usually been victorious on the bona fide sale exception. And only in a and that covers twenty thirty six A two as well, right? Right. And only in a very small handful of cases have the taxpayers uh, or their estate lost on bona fide sale exception, but nonetheless did not lose on twenty thirty six A one. Right. This got intensified in Powell. Yes, the argument was made in Strangey, but the court also gave another reason for applying 2036A2, and that is that the decedent owned like 49% of the S corporation that was the general partner, and as owner of the general partner, ability to control distributions, et cetera. And so we primarily looked at Strangey for that. Powell is the first one where they were only owned a limited partnership interest. And still, 2036A2 got, got triggered. So, so and, and I agree a meaningful with you. expansion. Uh, it, it is a meaningful expansion. And again, it goes back to just more and more important than ever that to satisfying the bona fide sale for full consideration exception. Um, it, interesting, Steve, that, that the bona fide sale exception was not argued in the Powell case. Yeah, was, was, you're right. was not argued. And I think in large part, you know, and, and I know from discussions with the attorney for the taxpayer that they thought they just didn't have an argument. They, they really did not have bona fide non-tax reasons other than getting a discount. That was the reason that it was right. done. This has been Conversations on Wealth by Bloomberg Tax. You can find Conversations on Wealth on pro.bloombergtax.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Consider leaving us a review on iTunes or reaching out to Todd at todd.angatovinich at ey.com or daniel at dhoffy at bloombergtax.com. Until our next conversation, happy planning.